In James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, as we studied last time, James discussed divine wisdom, divine wisdom that results in peace and righteousness, as opposed to the earthly and sensual wisdom, which is not from above, obviously. It results in strife and envy and confusion. And now as we begin chapter 4 of our continuing study here on Sunday nights of the gospel uh, of the epistle of James, James uh, confronts the ever-present problem, perhaps the greatest problem that the church faces in this or any other time, and that is the problem of worldliness. Worldliness that affects the church. Worldliness that infiltrates the church. And such worldliness always results when Christians fail to follow the dictates of the divine wisdom about which James wrote in the verses preceding these which we will study tonight. Tonight we'll consider the first three verses of chapter 4 as we continue our expository study in James where James writes here, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. The question that he first asks is where do wars and fights come from among you? And that denotes strife, it denotes quarrels, it denotes disputings, it denotes contention. And it's quite probable here that James is referring not to the external wars and fights that we see uh, periodically that go on in our world around us, but it's quite probable that he is speaking here to the internal bickering and strife that occurs at times tragically among members of the Lord's church. There's nothing less than tragic. It is nothing less than tragic when members of the body of Christ are unable to work together in complete unity and in complete harmony. And let me say something as we study these verses that I am very thankful for tonight, and that is that I am not addressing a reality at White Oak when we talk about the internal bickering and strife and the warring among the members. I am talking about a potentiality, but not a reality. And I'm so thankful for that. And when I have to say I'm talking about a potentiality, I say that not because I expect that to occur at any moment at White Oak, that we're going to just erupt in strife and bickering and quarreling. I don't anticipate that at all, but I have to say it's a potentiality, don't I? Why? Because in any congregation, it is a potentiality for the very thing to occur that James is addressing here. Why? Because Satan is at work. And because Satan will use anyone and everyone at any time and at all times to bring about the kind of condition that is far less than conducive, to say the least, to the growth of the kingdom of God in any place. And probably there are those of us here who've lived long enough and been members of the body of Christ long enough and have been in different places where perhaps we have been witness tragically to the very kind of internal strife and bickering and disruption of harmony and unity 
that James is addressing here. And we know how tragic that is. Thankfully, that's not the case here at White Oak. And so I say at the outset that I'm very thankful that I'm addressing a potentiality, not a reality here. We're not trying to correct a problem as we study and apply these great teachings of this inspired writer. But we are reminding ourselves that we are human beings and that unless we feed upon those things that will prohibit the kind of deterioration of unity and harmony that can at times and has at times occurred in various congregations, we can become prey to the devil. And we must make sure that we're ever on guard, never to take for granted the peace and unity that exists here. And while we think about the peace that we have here, we do not want to associate rest in peace with that, do we? In other words, we don't want to associate resting on our laurels, so to speak, from the standpoint that we are content to be at peace and in unity and, at, and, and in harmony. We want to bring others into that unity. We want to bring others into that harmony. We want others to partake of what we are blessed to enjoy here. And so, therefore, we continue to labor to expand the borders of the kingdom here. But as we do, we would never be successful in doing so if indeed the kind of conditions existed here at White Oak that James is addressing here in this particular section of his epistle. Who's going to be drawn, who's going to be drawn to internal strife and bickering and covetousness and murder? No, I don't think literally murder here, but the idea being you kill or you murder and covet. In other words, if looks can kill, have you ever heard that expression? James may be in effect saying that while actual murder was not occurring in the congregation uh, uh, or any congregation to whom he addresses this epistle, the kind of hatred that sometimes can exist between and among members of the body of Christ, in effect, is the equivalent of murder from the standpoint of what the Lord said about it in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it is said, you shall not murder, but what about hatred? What about hatred? Hatred that could lead to that kind of action or hatred that is so intense and so bitter that indeed it constitutes sin even though it falls short of actual murder. And so James describes a horrendous condition here fights and wars that come from among you. And what is the source of that? What is the source of that? He tells us here, doesn't he? You know, when members of the church who engage in continual bickering, strife and dissension in the body of Christ, when they do that, they demonstrate something, I think, one of two things. They either demonstrate their ignorance of or their total indifference toward the nature and the mission of the Lord's church here on earth. How can we say we truly understand what the church is all about if as a part of the church we are allowing ourselves to be engaged in this kind of activity? We can. Remember what the Lord said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Strife and bickering among yourselves. Well, of course not. If you have what? Love one to another. In Hebrews 10, 24, the, the writer there says, let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. 
consider one another within the body of Christ, in other words, to stir up love and good works. But we also need to add that because there are problems at times in the church, that doesn't make it any less the church, does it? When problems sometimes arise in a congregation, some are heard to say, well, I think I'll just quit. I would just be better off staying at home and minding my own business with the situation being what it is. And there have been no doubt many who have, because of internal strife and bickering in congregations, have simply quit. But you can't justify that attitude in a million years. One's personal responsibility is not abrogated because of problems in the church. That doesn't relieve one of his or her personal responsibility, does it? What if Jesus had displayed that kind of attitude on his way to Calvary? With all the discouragement that he had to face, it would have been quite easy for him from the human standpoint to have simply abandoned his mission, wouldn't it? But obviously he didn't. There have been those perhaps that at times have been converted out of denominationalism and when problems arise in the Lord's church, they say, well, I think I'll just go back to where I came from. What a shameful attitude. That is, the very idea of turning one's back on the Lord, the very idea of trampling underfoot and crucifying the very Son of God afresh because there are imperfections in humanity. And so whatever we face in terms of problems in the church, we have to understand and appreciate that I still have a fulfillment of my personal responsibility to carry out. I have a responsibility to be a faithful Christian. I can't do that if I return to a man-made religion. I can't do that if I simply determine to quit and leave the body of Christ. No, no one has ever had any more problems that I can think of with members of the church than Paul did. And yet he never said, you know, I think I'll just go back to being a Pharisee. I had a pretty good situation there. I think I'll just go back to being a Pharisee. No, no, he did not have that attitude. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Now we get to the source of the problem. Do they not come, he asked, from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Getting to the source of the problem. You know, that's a good practice to follow in our everyday lives, isn't it? You really can't solve a problem until you get to the source of the problem. But even when you get to the source of the problem, that doesn't mean that it justifies the sin simply because you've identified uh, the source. A rotten branch on a tree is not any less rotten because the root system of that tree is unable to reach sufficient water. It's still a rotten branch, isn't it? A man may be a compulsive liar, but obviously he has to get to the source of why he is a compulsive liar. But when he does and discovers that source, whatever it may be, that doesn't change the lying doesn't change a man's problem with drinking or his sin of drinking, doesn't change anything, but it does help to get to the source, doesn't it? So that we can effectively deal with the problem. And so what was the source of the wars and fights among them? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Your desire or lust, as the King James renders it, lust fleshly desire, pleasurable desires. That's the source of war and fighting. And the word here, pleasure, is the word from which we get our word hedonism. 
which is the doctrine that pleasure is the sole chief or purpose in our lives. How many tragedies can we read about in Scripture from the source of this kind of spiritual strife that James is describing here? Well, think about a few of them with me. What about David? What about David in 2 Kings 11 and the sin with Bathsheba? All of that had to do with what? The desire for pleasure that warred in his members. And when James says your members, he's maybe primarily referring to the members of the body, the physical body, the pleasures that war within you. But obviously there are sometimes uh, desires that war in the members of the body of Christ as well. But I think primarily here the idea is the lust for pleasure that wars within you. That struggle within to control the lust of the flesh. David didn't do that in 2 Samuel 11. What about a man named Ahab, wicked, wicked king, who wanted a vineyard so badly that when Naboth wouldn't sell him his vineyard or in any way do business with him because that was the inheritance from his fathers, from his ancestors, Naboth says, I'm not selling you my vineyard. Ahab went home, went to bed, turned his face to the wall and just pouted because he couldn't have what he wanted. And Jezebel took care of it, didn't she? She asked him why he wouldn't eat. He's just lying there in bed looking at the wall. And she asked him why and he explained and she took care of it. Had a feast devised for Naboth to be honored there at this feast and these scoundrels came and accused Naboth falsely of blaspheming God and the name of God. They took him out and stoned him and then she came back to her husband Ahab and said, now go get your vineyard. Everything's been taken care of. Whew, that's awful, isn't it? And what was the source of all of that? The desire, the lustful desire for things, for a vineyard, believe it or not, leading to the murder of an innocent man. What about the rich fool in Luke chapter 12? I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns, consumed with the pleasures of this life, the things of this life, worldliness. And the Lord said to him, you're a fool this night. Your soul is going to be required of you, and whose will all these things be? Oh yes, there have been tragedies resulting from uncontrolled desire in these cases and others that could be cited. Members, the war within the members, and as we said, most likely the members of the physical body are under consideration here, but it would also hold true with the members of the church, wouldn't it? But because of lust, because of the desire to satisfy the longings and the cravings of the flesh, man often creates within himself an arena of conflict. He creates within himself a raging war. Kind of reminds us of what Paul talked about in uh, regard to uh, the law, as in Romans chapter 7. In verse 23, he said, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body 
of death? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ, as Paul points out in the next verse in that context. And you know, it may be that man may restrain himself from the things that, that the desire for pleasure incites him to do. He may be able to restrain himself, but as long as that desire for pleasure is in his heart, he's never safe. It's like the tongue we talked about earlier. You cannot leave it unguarded. And in this case, the situation may explode into disastrous action at any time if he harbors those desires. And the steps that lead to the tragedy that we see with Ahab, the tragedy with David, with Bathsheba, the tragedy of the rich fool, the steps are simple. The steps are simple that lead to the tragedy. The consequences are tragic. First of all, he allows himself, the individual does, to desire something. And then that desire begins to dominate his thoughts. And he finds himself thinking of it when he's awake, dreaming of it when he's asleep. It becomes a ruling passion. And finally, desire breaks out of its restraints and becomes part of action. Most every crime that's committed results from desire, doesn't it? Desire, which was first only a feeling in the heart, but allowed to be nourished, it finally exploded into action. And the members of the spiritual body, when one's chief aim in life is worldly pleasure, if one's chief aim in life is worldly pleasure, as we think about the members of the spiritual body, the lust for power, the lust for prestige, the worldly prominence, then you're going to have among the members of the body of Christ, you're going to have conflict, you're going to have clashes, anywhere in a setting where you have as the chief aim in life, worldly pleasures. Those clashes are inevitable. That's true in wars between nations. It's true in the home. It is true in the church. It's true in every realm because all of it results from misguided lust. And that's why worldliness is still the greatest problem the church faces in this or any other time. In verse 2 he says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James's readers were caught in a vicious circle. There was a passionate desire for worldly things for which they had no need. They were trying to satisfy their lust. They found it necessary to engage in a state of continual strife and warfare, and all of it resulted in not having. You have not. You lust and you do not have. You know, men who live just to satisfy their worldly desires will never have. They'll never have. That is, they'll never realize their goal. They'll never have enough because if that's their desire and they're consumed with the material, then the more they get, the more unsatisfied they become because they're caught up in obtaining more. And in the attempt to find satisfaction and happiness in worldly pursuits, man is actually rebelling against his basic nature because man is created in whose image? The image of God, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And the real man, that is the inner man, can never be satisfied 
with material things, not by getting and not by receiving. Look with me at the experience of the wisest man of his time, Solomon. What did he have to say about it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2? I said in my heart, verse 1, Come now, I will test you with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of, uh, I searched in my heart, or I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which, no, uh, from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. He goes on, I also gathered for myself silver and gold. The special treasures of kings and of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Now verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. That's what Solomon discovered. You lust and you do not have. The more he got, the more he realized that all was vanity and a grasping for the wind. James says, you do not have. And then he says, because you do not ask. That was one of their problems. Just the absence of prayer. And then we'll see the abuse of prayer. But the absence of prayer was one of their problems. They didn't desire the right things. They had no desire to ask for the things they really needed. And so the result was not only did they fail to obtain the things they really needed, but failed to get sufficient material goods to satisfy even their craving for pleasure. And this emphasizes that there is power in prayer properly prayed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, remember James will later tell us, avails much, but that was not the case with these individuals. There were some who failed to receive because they didn't ask. Others were asking but still failing to receive. You know, we might think it's strange that the kind of individuals about whom James is writing here would even pray at all. But it's not that unusual at times if you think about it. Sometimes those engaged in high-handed wickedness will actually try to invoke the blessings of God upon their endeavors. What about the religious wars that have been waged over history in history? But they ask not, they ask amiss, 
because they were asking in order to what? Spend it on their pleasures. You ask and do not receive. You ask and do not receive, verse 3. Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. If having met God's requirements regarding acceptable prayer, not the unacceptable prayer about which we're reading here, but if we have met God's requirements regarding acceptable prayer and we still fail to receive what we ask for, how do we need to view that? How do we view that? Well, God knows our needs far better than we do. That's what we never need to lose sight of. He knows our needs better than we do. And he may be delaying the granting of the request that we make, even though we ask it in accordance with his will, even though it's a request that, that is not a request like the ones we're reading about here that were uh, designed to fulfill the lust of the flesh. He may delay that because he has reasons. He may have something far better for us in mind. We don't know that. And we always need to remember that no is an answer. And sometimes he says no. But in this case, they were asking amiss to spend it on their own pleasures. And the word amiss here means literally in an evil manner. In an evil manner. And it describes their motives for asking. Those motives were completely selfish. They were motives to fulfill their carnal desires, and God is not going to hear such a prayer. And we need to be reminded by this that in our prayers to God, our motives are absolutely crucial. Is it proper at any time to ask for something material? Or is it always improper to ask for something material? No, it's not always improper. Not if our motive is unselfish. What if we are asking to be blessed materially because we have something specific in mind that we want to do that would benefit others tremendously? That we might be able to reach more souls. That we might be able to do more to advance the cause of Christ by the material blessings that God can bestow upon us. Would it be wrong or improper at all times to ask for such blessings if our motives are completely pure? And we're willing to follow through on those things? No, I don't think so. The point is we need to examine our hearts, ask ourselves why we're asking Him. Ask yourself why you are asking Him for whatever it is. And as we conclude our thoughts tonight in this section, we've seen that James sets before us a basic question. And that basic question is this. What is your aim in life? Is it to submit to the will of God or is it to gratify your desires for pleasures of this world? Because you cannot have it both ways, we are told. It has to be one or the other. That's why worldliness is such a threat to the church. Because it can creep in and overtake individuals in the body of Christ before they know they've been overtaken. And they may never really believe they've been overtaken because they can justify or rationalize their quest for material things or their emphasis on material things to the detriment, if not the complete exclusion, of spiritual things. You cannot have both things.
complete submission and pleasing to God, being pleasing to Him, and gratifying the desires for the pleasures of this world. James is going to remind us of that very graphically in the next section we'll be studying. When he says this, verse 4, a preview. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't gratify the desires for the pleasures of this world. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy material things. That's not what we're saying. But in terms of motive, in terms of quest, in terms of priorities, in terms of desires, the overwhelming desire within each one of us must be spiritual in nature and not material. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one, Jesus said, and love the other, or else he'll hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and material things. We must never lose sight of that fact. He who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathering with me scatters abroad. Matthew 12, verse 30. Each person has to decide for himself where his priorities will be, what his quest will be, what his aim in life will be. But each person has to make that decision. And there are consequences, very serious consequences of a life that is dominated by the quest for pleasure. It will set men at each other's throats. That will. And when men strive to have the same things for themselves, those same things competing with each other for the material things, life becomes a competitive arena. And God never intended for our lives to be a competitive arena. Obedience to God brings men together. Obedience to carnal desires drives men apart. And to obey the will of God is to be essentially selfless while to serve the desires for pleasure is to be essentially selfish. And that's what James reminds us of here. That life dominated by the quest for pleasure will drive men to shameful deeds, envy and hatred manifested by continual strife and warfare, and it will close a door that we must never want to close, and that is the door of prayer. Worldliness will close the door, slam it shut, in terms of communicating with the Father in heaven. Because a one, the one who is dominated by the quest for pleasure does not pray, thy will be done, but rather my desires be satisfied. And for God to answer that kind of prayer would really constitute providing a man with ways to sin. God's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. Point is, no man can pray acceptably as long as he himself is still ruling on the throne of his heart. It's only when he dethrones himself and enthrones God that he can pray acceptably. And so tonight we ask, who reigns on the throne of your heart? I believe I know the answer to that for so many here, but there may be someone here who cannot say that the Lord reigns on the throne of your heart because you haven't become a Christian. And if you haven't become a Christian, then there's no question about the fact that it's still you on the throne.
and in effect Satan on the throne, whether we like to admit that or not, because if I'm on the throne of my heart, Satan is there with me because Satan is still controlling that heart. I've got to dethrone self and Satan and enthrone the Savior by a belief in the Savior that will lead me to deny self, repent of my sins, confess him to be the Christ, be buried with him in baptism, rise to walk in newness of life, and end my quest for the carnal and the material and begin my quest for the spiritual that will lead me ultimately to the heavenly home. And speaking of home, if you need to come home tonight as one who has wandered from the way, one who has allowed the world to creep in again where you once, where you once rid yourself of that world and those worldly desires. If Satan has re-entered to the extent that he has brought sin in your life that needs to be repented of in a public way, we plead with you to do that. And to all those who need no repentance, may we simply, as we said at the outset, be reminded that the peace and the harmony and the unity that exist in the body of Christ at this place is something that we must not take for granted. We must keep working to maintain it, never fail to appreciate it as we should, and recognize that it will take each one of us determining that we're going to keep the Savior on the throne and keep self off of it if we're to continually enjoy that beautiful harmony and unity that we are blessed to have at this time. Tonight, if you need to respond to the invitation, will you come as we stand and sing?